Hello, this is John Lenchner, and welcome to On Not Knowing, a series of conversations about embracing a growth mindset. In our prior podcasts, we spoke with two IBMers who in different ways personify what it means to be growth-minded, IBM fellow John Cohn and early IBMer Lori French. Today, we're up to something a bit different. Andy Aaron, the show's producer, and I are visiting with four-time Emmy Award-winning journalist, author, and moderator of the Intelligence Squared U.S. debate series, John Donvan. John was also the moderator for the first live debate featuring IBM's debater system at the IBM Think Conference in San Francisco in 2019. In that debate, the debater system argued in favor of the motion we should subsidize preschool and did a formidable job against one of the very best human debaters, Harish Natarajan. We have links to that debate on the Growth Mindset website. The debate was done in the Oxford Union style, just like the Intelligence Squared debates. If you've never listened to any Intelligence Squared debates, I encourage you to do so. You can find links to some of these on our website. You'll learn something, I promise. And if you're like me, you'll feel a little bit gleeful at the end, realizing that it's possible to have such a dignified and fact-based debate about substantive political, scientific, or cultural issues. The glue that keeps these debates moving is John Donvan. The reason we're talking to John today is that Andy and I decided that we wanted to learn the magic of his keen listening ability. John can spot inconsistencies or gaps in arguments and immediately turn the points around on the debater in an incisive but fair way. So let's listen to the secret of how John does it. Great to have you with us today, John. Thanks, John. It's a pleasure to be here. So growing up, how did you get interested in journalism and ultimately debating? Actually, John, you started your career in radio, isn't that right? Yeah, yeah. I, I started in a little radio station in Connecticut in the town of Old Saybrook, where I was the one-person news department. Radio was where I began, and it's really kind of always where my heart has been because of the active imagination that, that radio takes. And you became a foreign television correspondent with all kinds of incredible assignments. What were those experiences like? Yeah, I got to do that really, really young and and to travel the world. And this was at a time when, because of the Cold War being a sort of template on which Americans viewed the world, it was basically, we could die at any time in a nuclear holocaust. And that was an energizing, organizing principle to foreign policy and to journalism about the world. So we in the news business tended to see the world in terms of we're on the side of America or we're on the side of the Soviets. And um, so I, I traveled through uh, Africa and the Middle East. I lived in the Middle East. I lived in Moscow. I lived in London. You were actually in uh, the Soviet Union, I think Red Square, when uh, the Soviet flag came down. Yeah, I got really, really lucky with an assignment that I got. Uh, I, I'd covered, been covering Eastern Europe as um, the revolutions of the 1980s happened. So I, I was covering Poland as it moved away from the Soviet Union. I was traveling through East Germany the day after the Berlin Wall came down and reached Berlin the day after. I was then in Romania when that system was overthrown by a very violent uh, uprising in the streets. And the leader of R Romania, uh, Ceausescu, was shot in a firing squad after a sort of kangaroo court trial. Uh, on Christmas Day, I was there when that happened. And then I was in Prague when the Velvet Revolution happened. All of these things happened within about six weeks of each other. It was an amazing time. And immediately after that, ABC transferred me to the Soviet Union, which was still going, for about another 
two years. And um, ultimately, the Soviet Union peacefully disorganized and canceled itself. And I was in Red Square the night that the Soviet flag came down for the last time and the flag of the Russian Republic went up. The power uh, of the Soviet Union sort of just shut off at that point. And also, as I said before, because so much of journalism had been shaped that way, that the whole journalism world sort of came to an end. That was the turning point at which news organizations stopped paying a lot of attention to foreign coverage. The the action for you didn't didn't stop there. I mean, from there you went and you covered the Iran Iraq War and 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 then both Persian Gulf Wars. You say you weren't in the middle of these wars, but from everything I've read, that's almost to the contrary. You're right in the middle of them. Yeah, the the Iran Iraq War had 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 played out before the end of the Soviet Union had reached its conclusion. It was a incredibly brutal and killed in its combat phases and many more people than uh, the combat phases of the Gulf Wars. And it was sort of old-fashioned trench warfare, and it was being fed in a cynical way by powers on both sides, including the United States. And um, the Israelis were arming both sides to kind of keep that thing going. But yeah, after the Soviet Union, before the Soviet Union ended, I was uh, at the first Gulf War and then the second Gulf Gulf War. I was at those. And um, that was at a time when the Pentagon had created this system for, for reporters to be embedded and go with troops. And I didn't go that way. I went the old-fashioned way, which was to just go to the war. So it meant that I, would, I was not with the troops and I was kind of on my own. And that was a stupidly, stupidly dangerous way to go that I regret to this day because the odds of having gotten killed were really high and probably higher than I anticipated. And I know that because I I had colleagues who were killed. Uh-huh. So any very close calls? Yeah. There was a, a journalist I knew from my days working in London named Terry Lloyd, and he and I crossed the border on the same day and in the same hour, and I saw him doing a stand-up. That's where you stand from the camera and you talk to the camera. I saw him doing a stand-up as I drove by. He died later that day. He was shot and killed. Oh, wow. um, so I don't know if I call that a close call, but I think it's- Could have been you. Could have been you. Right. with the risks. And then another time I was in a building- shooting some stuff that uh, it was a former police station and the the community had gone in and ransacked the place and turned all the files over. And I went in to take pictures of, of this. And then I I walked out of it and the building exploded. Um, an explosion happened in the building. I don't, I'm not sure why, what exactly happened, but that was, again, another pretty wow. close wow. brush that I'm aware of. Okay. So actually between these uh, two Gulf Wars, you were... Uh, for some time, the ABC's chief White House correspondent uh, yes. during the Clinton presidency. Yeah. And then you went back for more. But in, in the meantime, tell us about your, your stint at the White House. I covered the White House for about 13 months. And um, it, was a, it was, to be honest, a very frustrating time for me and a frustrating time in my career. And the legendary Peter Jennings was a, a mentor of mine, at least for a time. He had made his career as I had as a foreign correspondent. And being a foreign correspondent is really was really formative for me because it's a certain kind of reporting, a certain style of reporting, a certain attitude towards knowledge and information and truth in your sources and your audience as well. And being a political correspondent is a completely different thing. It's a different set of skills, different attitude, different purpose even. So ABC had indicated that I and a few other people from my age group were in the running to someday be the anchor of the network. And they'd said it explicitly to me, to be the next Peter Jennings. So part of what they wanted me to do was to go cover the White House because 
Dan Rather had covered the White House before he became Dan Rather, and Tom Brokaw had covered the White House, and Brian Williams had covered the White House, that covering Peter Jennings, interestingly, had not, but the other ones all had. And it was kind of, you have to cover the White House to someday be the anchor of the network. And um, I just wasn't a political reporter. I did not have those instincts of a political reporter. I had foreign correspondent instincts, and they're different. And um, to me, foreign correspondent instincts are about going to learn about a place and to watch it, everything that's going on and to, and to be able to explain what's going on and to be able to translate is an important part and to be able to hear and to be able to listen and to know the languages and to understand the culture and to set yourself aside and try to take in everything that's going on around you. Okay, so this seems actually, John, like the formative years where you developed your deep listening that would ultimately serve you well in uh, the Intelligence Square debates. But I, I imagine that the uh, following Clinton in the White House years, it was a different skill set. It was a different skill set that I didn't have. And the skill set when you cover the White House, at least the skill set that one, one is expected to have, is to be a watchdog and to be a challenger and to be a uh, an extreme skeptic, to be cynical, somewhat to be cynical. And uh, and it, it, just, it just didn't come to me naturally. I, I don't think I have that instinct and maybe it's called a killer instinct i don't think that i had it i had been wandering the world for 13 years i'd been in jungles and on rivers and on in siberia i'd been wandering the world and suddenly i was in this room every day with this, the assignment of of you know be a watchdog to clinton and abc decided that i wasn't doing very well at it and i wasn't so i was moved on i was also kind of moved off the list of future anchors but I, ABC continued to give me a very good career, and I went on to Nightline. And at Nightline, I did do that kind of reporting. Nightline did give me the ability to cover America with the sense of curiosity and exploration that I had covered the rest of the world with. So it was just bad. It was a tough, tough growing experience, I take it. It wasn't pleasant, but it was character building. <laughs> I'll say that. Okay, so you you didn't have it in you to constantly uh, you know cut down Clinton, but I think that the inconsistencies that you were uh, called upon to spot in Clinton, you actually ultimately cultivated, and were, you were able to do that in the Intelligence Square debates. Uh, when you spot an inconsistency in an argument in Intelligence Square, you do it with incredible grace. So let's use that to uh, segue to uh, your time at Intelligence Squared. So I know Intelligence Squared was founded in two thousand six. Yeah. Um, you've been with them since the beginning? Since 2008. I came in the third year. And how, how did you, um, how did that transition? You were still working at ABC, I guess. Uh, I was working at ABC and Robert Rosenkrantz, who founded Intelligence Squared US, hired a former ABC producer named Dana Wolf, who had worked at Nightline to start it up. And Dana did an amazing job starting from zero to creating this thing, this event, this monthly event that people in New York City, which is a very tough market, would, would come to and fill halls with. And um, for the first two years, they they were using basically celebrity individuals as moderators, changing it for each debate. So like Bob Costas moderated a debate and Robert Siegel of NPR moderated a debate and several other, other um, people who had like strong reputations in the business. I think uh, Robert Krolwich, I think might've moderated a debate. And th so th these are all people who, you know, certainly 20 years ago were leading lights in the news media firmament. And um, I said to Dana, I would love to do one. And um, I kept pressing her and pressing her. And one day she called me up and said, 
uh, would you be interested in doing all of them? And I said, why? And she said, because it's, it's really been a problem. Every debate, we have to train the moderator and not everybody can do it well. And we waste a lot of time and we want to have somebody who can, who can grow into this job, into this position and be consistent. So I said, absolutely, I want to do that. So that's how I started uh, doing the debates. The, the charter of Intelligence Squared is to elevate the level of public discourse. But to be honest, that doesn't seem to ha have happened. I, I, when I go to one of the debates, I've actually been to one and I've, I've watched a bu bunch of them, I do feel elevated. It's a certainly an enlivening, enriching experience. But um, uh, could Intelligence Squared somehow do more? Yeah, we are doing more, actually. I, I think the answer to the question, like, why didn't we change the world yet? is because um, the world is hard to change. The world is big. And um, we were relatively small. And um, there's a lot of competing stuff going on out there. But in the last uh, four to five months, um, we've moved in a new direction where we're, uh, ironically, it's because of the pandemic, we stopped doing events in front of live audiences, which um, we pivoted to virtual debates. And they're not easy, but they're much more lightweight in terms of our ability to put them on. And so we've started now, um, and you'll see more of this in the coming year, doing something every week. So we haven't given up on trying to change the world. However, I mean, you've been in the audience. We yeah. changed the room. Um, we, you've been there. You've seen what we do. For the four or 500 people who are there for the live debate, I think you used the word gleeful, that you came away gleeful at the experience of actually watching people disagree, but in such a enlightening manner and uh, and in, in an encouraging manner. I've seen the same thing happen with audiences. I always like to go to the to the lobby afterwards and I hear people coming out and especially people who have changed their minds in the course of the debate, just like buzzing about, exhilarated by the experience of actually being able to change their mind in this day and age, particularly when that's like not a thing people are doing. So it's been little by little, audience by audience, um, that I think we've had an impact, but we're still... <laughs> We're still working at taking on the challenge of trying to raise the level of public discourse broadly. And we're going to be doing that with more programming. Okay, so then this may be a crazy question, but what's to stop political debates from taking place using this Oxford Union style and limiting the debate perhaps to one, one issue at a time? We should clarify what I mean by an Oxford Union style debate. So, John, if you could just uh, spend a moment to describe to the listeners what, what that means. The key aspect of an Oxford style debate is that there's a single statement put before the world, before the audience, before the debaters. It's a statement of fact or an opinion or a, a verdict. And one side has to prove that the statement is true. And the other side has to prove that the statement is false. And they have to bring in argument. And they're going to be held to account by an audience at the end voting for which side was more persuasive. That makes the debaters have to prove what they're saying. They can't just assert it. And because the audience is there, they can't prove it with BS and put downs and personal attacks because the audience is too smart for that. They have to prove it with logic and with facts. They have to make a case. And that's the essence of what an Oxford style debate is and what we do. Right. And so just to give the audience an idea, some of the um, debates that I've seen, one was is the, the motion was the internet is making us dumber. And so that was a quite interesting one. Uh, I think the one that the IBM debater system uh, competed with uh, the British fellow was, um, what was it? Preschool should be subsidized. Yeah. Yeah. So there, you'll find a myriad, if you go to the um, Intelligence Squared website, you'll find a myriad of uh, 
really fascinating debates that you can uh, play through, and I encourage people to do that. Okay, so let me shift gears a tiny bit. So I know in October, uh, you mentioned Bloomberg. So Intelligence Squared, Bloomberg, and IBM announced a new partnership, the airing of this uh, new program called That's Debatable on Bloomberg TV. Can you tell us a bit about the program and the partnership? Uh, the partnership was really put together by our uh, CEO, uh, Clea Connor, um, who persuaded Bloomberg to to take a virtual debate from us that would include a participation by IBM and IBM's artificial intelligence system, uh, popularly known as Watson. Uh, and then IBM would participate as a sponsor in the program. So that was that was bringing together three organizations with with very different cultures, Bloomberg and us and IBM. Um, to put on uh, a debate that was meaningful, that was of global interest, and where there's a, a unique participation by the Watson technology. Um, and what we do is we we do our normal debate, but before the debate, we solicit from around the world, from everybody who's a fan of Intelligence Squared, uh, an argument on whatever it is we're debating. We, we asked them to write two, two or three sentences on how they would argue the point, what they think the most important, important points are. And then the AI analyzes this collection of, you know, thousands, uh, we've had thousands of people responding and can recognize the polarity of the arguments, the quality of the arguments, and then ranks them. And then in the middle of the debate, as the debaters are talking, I have a moment where I say, all right, We've, we've gone to the world to see how they argue this, and I want to bring in some of the points that they've made. So it's a way for us to use the AI to reach the viewpoints of a much larger audience than we could ever get by having a live audience in front of us. And it helps us actually, it's, it has helped us get to some points of debate that hadn't come up before, that is to, to us are sort of novel because they're coming from, from all over the world. So that's how that triple partnership works. Oh, nice. And has it proved uh, by your viewership uh, to be quite popular? Yeah. I mean, the participation in the, uh, in, in the submission of, the, of, of arguments has been really, really high, much higher than I thought it would be. I thought it would, people would, might take it as too much homework to do, but I guess they want to do the homework because they've been doing it. Oh, nice. Yeah, one thing, actually, this is a bit different, not, but still on the AI side of debating. When I watched the debater perform against the human debater at Think, I, I thought that the uh, debating system had more interesting factual information by far. And even actually in the recent uh, debate that I watched, nationalism is a force for good, I felt like the uh, people who were arguing in favor of the motion did a much better uh, factual job in supporting their, their position. But the, in reality, it's really emotive connection with the audience that seems to have a big sway, at least in me. And uh, at the end, despite that, I probably learned more from those in favor of the motion. Those in, in against the motion really carried the emo the moment with me. I mean, how, how do you find it, and how do how do how does do audiences typically react? It's an interesting point. I I think it can cut both ways. I think we've seen debaters come in with with arguments that are wholly emotion and stories and anecdotes. And they kind of get clobbered if they're up against opponents who are coming in with facts and data. But if there's an opponent that has facts and data and no emotion, and an opponent that has facts and data and emotion, it's that second combination that tends to win. People want to like the debaters, and they want to think that they have their hearts in the right place, and that they're nice people, and that they like them. 
but they also want to they want to know that there's substance they want to they really they really are sort of saying show me show me why i should vote for your side give it give me the reasons and that's what we mean by raise the level of public discourse we don't just mean be more civil but we also mean uh, make better arguments you know really appeal to critical thinking so let me steer now to the topic of deep listening i mean how do you do it you seem to interject and steer the conversation quite a bit how do you manage both to listen so intently and then formulate such articulate critiques or uh, shifts in the conversation? I had to practice it. In a way, the the skills that I developed as a foreign correspondent as opposed to a political correspondent come into play because when I was a foreign correspondent, I, I considered listening, taking myself out of the, the process, not imposing my views and trying as hard as I could to recognize that I had biases and preconceptions and to s- try to find those and to set them aside and to just listen to another point of view because I saw my role as a foreign correspondent was to explain what the world was like as I found it. So that foreign correspondent experience really ca- helped me begin to develop these muscles of just, I don't want to say go passive, because it's very active listening, but to, but to be still, to find a still space and observe and take in what was going on around me. And I found that when I started doing the debates initially, it was like a fire hose of information for me. And it was in real time. And what, what was going on in the early days is that the, the debaters would sort of wander off point. And I wasn't saying anything in the beginning. I hadn't yet quite found my footing, but somebody can really take the opportunity to filibuster and to turn the debate away from the topic that we're discussing. So I finally decided that I needed to step up and shape the debate. I needed to shape it in a few ways. I needed to keep it on point. I needed to make sure that at every moment the debaters were actually arguing this resolution for or against because that's what the audience needed to decide. And I called on my my listening muscles to to listen, to go still and be as critically attuned to what they were saying as I could at every moment, just measuring, are they on point? Are they responding to each other? This guy's on a tangent. Is it going to come back to the debate or is it not? And if it's not, I have to step in. And so I would kind of go into a zone of of just going into hyper attentiveness with a with a strong set of what my agenda was my sole agenda was to preserve the integrity of the debate it wasn't about me it wasn't about showing that i was smarter than these people or that i could get them or i could catch them out it was a very very specific focus i need to make sure that they're arguing this resolution that they're responding to each other that they're not taking too long that they're not filibustering that they're not making up crap that they are not using personal insults and it's a high wire act. I mean, every every debate is a terrifying experience for me because I think it could end up in a train wreck. In the intensity of listening, you don't worry in the slightest way about what you're going to say. So a typical, you know, with me, I'm a total amateur at this. I spend some of my energy trying to figure out what I'm going to ask next and how, how to phrase that in an uh, articulate way. I suppose you're so experienced about this that just the act of listening will enable you to formulate an articulate way. Well, no, John, actually, there was a secret ingredient in all of this that I forgot to bring up. As it happens, Back in the early 2000s, when I was well along in my career, I had always had another dream and I had wanted to be a stage actor. And I started taking acting lessons at night and the acting had, a, had an improv element to it. And then the, and the training in improv 
was to let go of the need to know what you were going to say next and get really specifically into that moment and to be a, to be willing to find out that you did have nothing to say. And I began bringing that training into my listening, which was not to think about what am I going to say next, but to be exceedingly in the moment. I, I still have a relationship with ABC where I coach young correspondents in writing and broadcasting skills. And one of the things I say to them, when you're going to do an interview, do not write down a list of questions. Don't do that. And you can see what happens when a, a young reporter and sometimes even experienced reporter writes down the questions. They ask the question and then they stare at the person and then they ask the next question and then they stare at the person and then they ask the next question. What What's really going on there often is they're just waiting for the person's mouth to stop moving so they can ask the next question rather than listening to the answer. And, and, and sometimes you actually see, you know, an interview where somebody will say, you know, an interviewee will say, and that's why I like chicken sandwiches better than egg salad sandwich. And then the reporter would say, do you like chicken sandwiches better? They haven't even heard the answer. They've missed the answer. And so my coaching is take the risk don't know what your next question is based on what's happening in the moment. Follow what they're saying. Follow up with what they're saying. So that's what I started doing in the debate. And the improv experience helped me enormously to listen. And I've, I've encouraged other correspondents to take improv classes because that training was really, really good for this. Okay, so it's, that's something I'll have to take. <laughs> Improv, I've never done that. Uh, there, there's one part of your life story, though, I do want to get to before we, we finish up. And that is, in 2016, you wrote a book entitled In a Different Key, The Story of Autism. And then in 2017, it was a finalist for a Pulitzer Prize. So in it, you tell the story of tracking down a person known to be the first documented case of someone with autism, a Mississippi man named Donald Triplett. I was amazed at just how recent our attempt to come to grips with autism actually seems to be. I mean, this, this fellow Donald Triplett, he was born in 1933 and is still alive. Uh, so first of all, how did you get interested in autism? Two ways. My wife's brother is uh, profoundly autistic. And so that was my first introduction to knowing an autistic person. And I first met him back in the mid-90s. And people forget this now because autism has become so familiar a concept. But back in the mid-90s, it was still kind of a, what's autism? And then I was working at ABC with a colleague named Karen Zucker, who's my co-author on the book, and we're making the documentary together based on the book. And she had a son who was diagnosed with autism when he was three years old, around 1997. So he's in his 20s now. And she wanted to do reporting on ABC about autism and asked me to partner with her. So we, we kind of created a beat around autism, which again was a hard sell in the early days. When we went first went to ABC, they said, "What? who, who cares? Who, nobody has this. Um, but they changed over time, and we ended up doing the book together, and now we're doing the movie together. So that's how I got interested in it. Okay, so you argue in the book that autism is not a new phenomenon, actually. So you mentioned how in 15th century Russia, some autistic people were believed to be holy fools, touched by God, and were therefore given some sort of protected status. Uh, Leo Kanner, the Johns Hopkins child psychologist who's credited with diagnosing that fellow uh, Donald Triplett, he arrived at his diagnosis only in 1943. So uh, how widespread do you think autism was in the United States prior to that? I think it's always been the same, frankly. We just didn't call it, people had behaviors and we just didn't group them together and recognize them with the label autism. Uh, it's a very, very squishy term, actually, autism. The good thing about 
the coinage of the of the concept is that it's rescued a lot of people from what used to happen to autistic people. They would be they would be labeled uh, intellectually disabled, or um, and some and some are, but they would sort of become outcasts of society. And it used to be society's solution to to lock people like that up in institutions. So that's not happening anymore. So that's a good thing about this kind of broad concept. But it's it's problematic today the the concept of autism because it's so broad that it groups together people who probably have very, very different um, actual situations and conditions. And my brother-in-law is a, uh, an autistic man who, who can't function, uh, can't feed himself without assistance. Um, and, and I have friends who are on the autism spectrum who are college professors. And the fact that these two things are called the same thing is a little bit problematic because it, it challenges our, our understanding of how we should be supporting such people. Okay, so one, one last thing. Did your interest in autism in any way uh, and your ability to attend to autistic people, did it influence your ability to, in, and your interest in deep listening in any way? Is there any connection there? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Yes, it has. I had to learn to, I had to open my own mind to the, the, the notion that people on the spectrum, even if they couldn't speak, had something to say. I had to learn to recognize the other ways that they could communicate. My brother-in-law, paints. He he can barely speak a few words, but he paints pictures and that's communication. Uh, And other people have other ways of communicating with the world. Uh, And then there are people who are very, very verbal, but they might have, you know, idiosyncratic speech. And I just had to learn to to tune into that. If I wanted to have a relationship with a person on the spectrum, sometimes I was going to have to be the one who would go more than halfway. And so many people on the spectrum are trying very hard to come my way. I mean, they're working their asses off to do, and it's very stressful. I learned that it's very useful for me to have the attitude that I need to go more than halfway. Right. Oh, amazingly interesting, John. Thanks for for an enlightening discussion. It was really a pleasure. (laughs) I've definitely learned a few things that I can bring to my own life and uh, perhaps even future editions of this podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, that wraps up today's episode of On Not Knowing. A big thanks to our producer, Andy Aaron, and to our creative consultant, Mark Podlasek. I'm John Lynchner, and thanks for listening.